as of now, as we speak, we're in the middle of uh, a low tide mode, if I may say so, because the organization that praise jihadism are in a bad shape or are trying to reconfigure themselves. What they are doing is not plotting attacks. I mean, it might happen, of course, but their priority is not that. Their priority is to reconfigure themselves, is to recruit new, new networks, to rebuild cells, and to basically get ready for the next high tide mode. On November 13, 2015, a group of ISIS-trained jihadists launched coordinated attacks on the Bataclan, the Stade de France, and on many other Parisian cafes, killing 130 people, shell-shocking France, and opening a major conversation across Europe on ISIS and jihadism. In September 2021, the French Republic put on trial Salah Abdeslam, the lone survivor of a November 2015 terror cell and 20 other defendants. The multi-month trial was an opportunity to get justice for the victims and understand how such a disaster was possible. It also gave a sense of closure to a bloody chapter of European history. The gruesome attacks against Charlie Hebdo in Nice, Brussels, Manchester, and in many other places across Europe now mostly seem to be in our rear view mirror. But despite ISIS military defeats, in the considerable improvement of Europe's counter-terrorism capacities, we would be naive to believe the danger has passed. To cover the past, present and future of jihadism in Europe, we are joined by Hugo Micheron, one of the expert witnesses in the Abdeslam trial, and Petr Nessa, a long-time expert on jihadism. As per every week, thanks a lot to all of our wonderful patrons who continue to back us. Their support allows us to pay for our physical and digital equipment and plan for the long term. So, if you find yourself coming back every week to Uncommon Decency, maybe it is time to make your contribution on Patreon. You can even join our weekly sessions where we prepare for our upcoming episodes. If you can't spare the $5 or so a month, you can always write a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Spotify, and share the show with your friends. All of this really helps boost the show's visibility and attract new and exciting speakers. Now, on to the show. So, for this conversation, we have on one side of the line, Petter Nessa from Oslo, Norway. Um, you're a senior researcher at the Norwe Norwegian Defense Re Research Establishment, FFI, and an associate professor at the BY Norwegian Business School doing security management. You published in 2016, Islamist Terrorism in Europe, a history at the Oxford University Press, which is an impressive account of the Islamist movement in Europe over the past 40 years, and probably one of the most comprehensive books on the issue uh, I've read. Hugo Michon is joining us from Princeton in America, where he is a postdoc research associate for the Department of Near Eastern Studies. Uh, Hugo Michon, unsurprisingly perhaps, is not American, he is French. Um, he's a graduate from the École Normale Supérieure, and you published in 2020 Le Jihadisme Français, Quartier Syrie Prison, or in English, French Jihadism, um, Banlieue Syria Prisons for Gallimard. 
And just now for Tract, you published an essay entitled Le Jihadisme Européen, or the European Jihadism, which is to be published this summer. Um, Hugo is also a returning on the show. We had him for our episode 24, Inside the Jihad of Propaganda, alongside Jesse Morton. Jesse Morton is a former Islamist recruiter. And on this episode, we focus on the way Islamists um, pro- think, do their propaganda. So it's definitely worth a listen if you want to dig more into this topic. Um, thank you, Hugo. Thank you, Peter, for coming on the show. Um, before we get started, let's lay the groundwork, so to speak. Do we have? Do you have a working definition of jihad and jihadism? Um, um, Peter, do you have such a definition? And perhaps in what ways does it differ from what might be the mainstream understanding of this concept? Well, <laughs> um, this, this is a question that I get uh, asked a lot when I'm, um, I'm teaching or, or um, doing talks on, on, on the topic, especially when I'm ta- talking to uh, Muslim audiences. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, mm-hmm. as a researcher, a long-time researcher of, of, of this, this uh, phenomenon, um, I'm aware of the many meanings of the word jihad in uh, which means uh, struggle in, 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 in Arabic. Uh, and it can refer to a personal struggle uh, to become um, uh, you know, a better practicing Muslim uh, or an inter- internal struggle, personal struggle. But I mean, the, the most common understanding is, uh, of course, uh, uh, armed uh, um, struggle, armed struggle. Uh, at least in the in the context, of, or, or uh, when 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 we are, t- are talking about the subject we are talking about now, uh, talking about uh, militant uh, Islamist extremists, uh, the most common understanding is armed uh, struggle in defense of of uh, Muslim lands against foreign foreign or non-Muslim aggression, uh, or uh, armed struggle to establish uh, Islamic emirates and Islamic states. Um, and uh, eventually uh, seeking to, to re-establish the Islamic Caliphate. This is how the jihadists themselves uh, are using this, this, this ter- uh, are using this, uh, the word, uh, the concept. Uh, mm-hmm. In my research, I, I don't problematize this uh, very much. Um, uh, but, but, but of course, there's always a the, the discussion about... Um, the way we, we, we are referring to these groups. You go. Well, I, I think it's uh, um, important to distinguish between jihad and jihadism, as you, as mm-hmm. you just did. Um, so basically, to put it very bluntly, jihad is a concept, right? It's, it, it refers to uh, a term that is used in the, in the, in the holy book, in the Quran, and, and it's... Uh, it has been a long debated concept within the Islamic tradition, uh, meaning within the, the, the ulama, the, the scientists, the religious, mm. uh, religious scholars, uh, since at least the third uh, century of Islam, so the, the, the 10th century of our era. And um, it has been long debated uh, you know, its implication, uh, especially regarding whether it's 
a, a religious duty to wage war against an opponent and which kind of opponent and under which condition is, is, a, is, a, is a matter of debate, are matters of debate, but also um, about whether this is more like a personal struggle, so uh, um, an obligation for the, the believer to, to work to get to, to become a better Muslim, uh, or whether this is more like a communal uh, obligation for uh, uh, for like the entire community. So it's a, it's a very long debated debate. Let's let's just say there is no consensus over time uh, among religious scholars, but there is some uh, some some basic understanding of of jihad as both um, an an internal struggle. So that is called the, the greater jihad, the the necessity for the believer to work uh, to become a better Muslim, to fight against uh, temptation, to fight against um, uh, the shaitan, so the yeah. the, the evil, yeah. um, but also as a, a principle that could be uh, related to war, especially when the community of believers, uh, so the ummah, is under attack. Okay, so yeah. and and under the certain circumstances. All right. But jihadism uh, is is a, a, a contemporary ideology uh, that was built and framed uh, in the 1980s uh, inside the context of the Afghan war, the, the war in Afghanistan after the Soviet yeah. invasion of, of the country. Uh, so this is a modern phenomenon, and it was uh, theorized and conceptualized by thinkers and ideologues that will be sort of reproposing certain debates among the most orthodox and extremist scholars from the medieval time and will try to wrap it up into a more modern way to mm. produce what is now an ideology that was first framed into an organization that is Al-Qaeda and now that is more widespread than just Al-Qaeda. It's also updated mm. by by ISIS, and and I'm pretty sure we will be debating more about the latter, meaning the, the ideology and the groups that, that praise jihadism now than what what was historically jihad as a concept mm. in the Islamic tradition. Yeah, um, you, you mentioned Afghanistan. I don't think we, we want to go um, that far back in the, in the history of a jihadist movement. But let's focus on the heart of the conversation, which is um, jihadism and Europe. Um, Peter, in your book, you argue that Europe for the longest time was actually a, mainly an afterthought for, for the jihadist worldview. They had some views of uh, Al-Andalus, especially uh, you know, modern Spain, uh, but otherwise there wasn't that much thinking about Europe. And we start seeing a pivot in the 1990s, and especially the early 2000s, with Europe becoming much more of a both ideological and physical satellite battleground. Um can you walk us through that history of jihadism in Europe? And how do we explain this pivot from Europe becoming an afterthought to Europe becoming one of the major battlefields? Well, yeah, I mean, um, uh, it is it's kind, kind of, kind of uh, strange to talk about European jihadism, right? For the last uh, mm. 20 some years, we, ha we have had a lot of focus on uh, jihadism as, as a homegrown, uh, phenomenon in 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 Europe. Uh, in my opinion and, and from my perspective, um, 
this is uh, I don't I don't see it that way. I mean, uh, I, I see jihadism in the European context uh, as a spillover uh, from you know uh, conflicts, uh, uh, international conflicts in, involving involving. Uh, militant Islamists uh, in, of course, in Afghanistan, but also, you know, dating back to, to the local uh, struggles against uh, Arab regimes uh, from the 1960s, 60s, 60s and, and 70s uh, onwards. Um, but um, jihadism kind of uh, came to Europe in the late 1980s uh, and the early uh, 1990s. Uh, uh, and 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 at that point, um, uh, we we got uh, established, uh, you know, support networks for militant uh, Islamist groups in other parts of the world, mm. in 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 uh, uh, the Middle East and, and, and North Africa. Um, and uh, during the nineteen nineties, uh, these networks were mostly concerned with support activism. They uh, they were, you know. Uh, collecting money that they were sending to to uh, their uh, uh, militant groups in conflict zones. Uh, they huh. were recruiting. They were um, they were you know um, focusing on on pro- propaganda, uh, huh. and you know uh, uh, this was partly uh, you know uh, a window of opportunity uh, because uh, many of those. Uh, Jihadists were, you know, persecuted by local regimes and and were able to get asylum status in in European countries, uh, and and partly it was also a strategy, you know, uh, there are strategic texts by uh, some jihadi thinkers uh, and strategists such as Abu Musab al-Suri, who, who yeah. you know wrote about this idea of um, establishing uh, commandos behind enemy lines, as he said. And uh, this was actually the way uh, things mainly worked in the 1990s, where uh, where you had these support networks in, especially in places such as the UK. You know, many think of uh, France as kind kind of the the center for uh, European jihadists. Londonistan, as they were called back then. What? Londonistan, as it was called back then. Or nicknames. The nicknames, uh, uh, Londonistan, as it was coined by, I think, some people within the, the French security apparatus, uh, basically oh. at the time, uh, because uh, this became the nerve center, you know, the, the, the hub where the, the most important uh, uh, ideologues and, and entrepreneurs were gatherings. People such as Abu Qatada, uh, Abu Hamza al-Masri, um, and you know later, uh, or uh, people like like um, Umar Bakri Muhammad as well. Um, then then there's a shift uh, where you see um, Europe becoming a battleground for the first time, uh, uh, very concretely uh, with 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 the um, campaign by the GIA in France in in 1995, starting with the the hijack of the Air France uh, plane in Algiers. Um, with the aim of, of downing it over Paris, and then followed by a bomb campaign in uh, in uh, in French cities in uh, in during 1995, which is kind of the first wave of attack activity in Europe. 
before that, we are talking about support uh, activity by the GIA and, and by uh, people connected to, to Al-Qaeda and other um, uh, and, and, and like-minded mo- movements, basically. Huh. Uh, so, so, I mean, this is this is a phenomenon that that, that kind of uh, took root in Europe in 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 the 1990s, and then, of course, over time, um, you have uh, you, you have the homegrown element becoming more more um, uh, kind of important because. The mm. first networks were, were dominated by people from North Africa, uh, mo- mostly, uh, and Middle Eastern countries, and they were first-generation immigrants uh, or people who, who, who sought protection in, in, in Europe. Uh, and over time, uh, this, this basically, uh, we are talking about one expanding and evolving network, uh, of course, with subgroups and subnetworks, but... But essentially, it's 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 kind of it's a network that starts somewhere and expands, oh. uh, and uh, it's also becoming you know over time more European in the sense that um, the, the second generation, which which I date to the mid two thousands, is kind of um, uh, comes comes into existence um, uh, with, with you know the the, the first generation. Recruiting and socializing um, multinational uh, or, or, or people from uh, different nationalities, but who are um, basically second-generation immigrants to Europe and and thus Europeans, right? So, uh. so uh, the phenomenon becomes more European over time, and then of course we can discuss um, other drivers European. Uh, over time which is which is um, a different question and and also we have to be very specific about what we are trying to explain because in my work um, you know the, the the dependent variable is attack activity so so this is uh, something very specific I try to explain um, why um, and how jihadic terrorists uh, cells and, and, and networks emerge, emerge when and where they do. Uh, and uh, in, the, in, the, in the history of, of this phenomenon in, in Europe, we have seen three waves of attack activity. It was the GIA, oh. uh, GIA wave, the Algerian GIA in, in the 19, mid-1990s. And then there was the Al-Qaeda wave uh, in the 2000s. And then we saw... The IS wave of the of the 2010s, right? Mm. Um, Hugo, can you perhaps f- um, focus um, on the? If you want to add anything on on um, Peter's overview, but focus on on the way they perceive Europe. Yes. How has it changed? Sure. Well. First, to talk about European jihadism in the first place is a nonsense because there, there was no such thing as European jihadist movement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as I, I just said, the, 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 the first jihadist phenomenon sort of took root in Afghanistan in the first place in the 1980s. And, and the only reason why there were uh, jihadi networks in, in Europe in the 1990s is because of that. It's because of, of this war and the, 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 then the subsequent jihad in Algeria during the G- Algerian civil war in the 1990s and the Bosnian civil war, 
who played like an important role because so many veterans from from these places ended up in Europe and from then on started to preach and to recruit and to spread the idea of 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 jihadism in their in their surroundings area and within muslim communities in Europe and it it started in very small circles what we have to understand is in the first place, Europe was not a target at all. It was a safe heaven, so to say. They were like seeking asylum in, in Europe and, and they were not perceived as a threat until 9-11. And 9-11 yeah. is, a, is a defining a moment. It's a transformative event for European jihadism because after that, you will have not only Afghan and Algerian and Bosnian jihadist veteran, but some European born and raised pioneers of, of this idea in Europe. And they will try to sort of uh, take the lead after the arrestation, uh, the arrests and, and imprisonment of so many of the veterans after 9-11. Because 9-11 like, is a sort of a thunderstorm like uh, in, in, the, in the European sky. European mm. authorities, especially in France, in, uh, especially, sorry, in, in Great Britain and Germany, uh, it's, it's a wake-up call. And, and therefore, veterans will be arrested or at least prosecuted and, and supervised in a way they were never before. And that's the moment where European democracies understand that actually these guys who were like benefiting from, from asylum could actually be a threat for, for Western democracies. And so this is a, a change. And because of that, because of that reaction, well, these veterans were not arrested or in prison and their followers, the European pioneers, will start to think differently about Europe and will start to sort of return their weapons and, and start to uh, commit and plotting attacks against Europe. And this is in the wake of the invasion of Iraq as well by, by US yeah. and British forces in 2003 that we start to see like attacks. So 2004, there is the, the biggest and, and deadliest uh, and the, the most uh, violent attack in Europe so far in, in Madrid with the, the bombing of yeah. the, the training in the Atocha station. Mm. And a year after that, we've got, we've got mm. the, the UK 7-7, so the, the attacks in, in, the, in the London undergrounds and, and buses, bus station. And, and then you have, of course, the same year, the cartoon uh, affair that that sparkle in in Denmark that will also have so many consequences with Al Qaeda will start to threaten both Denmark and, and and Sweden. But what we have to understand is like alongside these attacks, you have from 9/11 onwards uh, a phenomenon of 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 European Europeans will start to develop a sort of a European perception of jihadism. And this is important because this will eventually give birth to uh, what we'll notice uh, with the rise of ISIS in the middle of the 2010s, which is like European born and raised by the hundreds, if not by the thousands, who are joining uh, ISIS in Syria and Iraq and returning you know, uh, to commit crimes and attacks in, in Europe. So another way to put it is to say that ISIS... And the European contingent of ISIS is a byproduct of trends that have been set in motion in the 1990s and actually like sort of took a real momentum after 9-11. Mm -hmm. Well, precisely, let, let's uh, try to focus a little bit more here on, on this timeline and kind of, you know, you've, you've, um, you've um, drawn up a, 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 um, 
a, a, a timeline of, of events where, you know, uh, uh, Europe starts becoming a sort of a, a battleground for, for these uh, jihadist networks. But, you know, these days, obviously, the number of major terrorist attacks has waned over the past four years. You know, we, we're no longer seeing these major kind of um, kind of attacks of the kind that we saw in, in Paris, say, in, in, in the 2014-2015. Uh, but ISIS, uh, the organization that Hugo was just talking about, has, you know, also considerably weakened uh, over over. Uh, over recent years, so what does what does the jihadi landscape look like now, and and to what extent can we speak of a, a European jihadi movement in the first place? Are these networks uh, connected with each other enough to you know warrant um, uh, a sort of this this uh, categorization as a single movement? Uh, starting with pattern, turning to Hugo. Thank you, Jorge, for for your for your question. So uh, first and foremost, we need to understand two things. Uh, First, jihadism cannot be reduced to terror attacks. Okay, terror attacks are the byproduct or the consequence of, of jihadism, not its cause. So that's very important to get that. The second thing is that jihadism cannot be reduced either to uh, organization that praise jihadism. Jihadism. So it's way wider than that. It's an ideology, and so it it means that you can destroy an organization like Al-Qaeda or ISIS and still have jihadist, jihadism as an ideology that is like, you know, developing and trending all, all over the place. So that, that is very important to understand where we are now. The second aspect that I wanted to, to mention right before responding to, to, to a relevant question is that over the course of the last three decades, jihadism has been uh, following... Uh, three different cycles. Uh, the first one is the, the one in the 1990s. So we just talked about it. It's it's how you know, like this idea was transplanted from the Afghan front lines to Europe through uh, veterans. Then the second one in the, is the 2000s. What happened with the Europeanization of, of jihadism through the involvement of young European pioneers yeah, that were taught and trained by the veterans who ended up spreading the ideas. Uh, in their surroundings and uh, and you know and families and relatives uh, circles all around them, and and the third uh, third phase third cycle is is the one with ISIS, the rise of ISIS in the middle of the Syrian civil war in 2014, and 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 how like it ended up like promoting jihadi attacks all across Europe, like two years after that, and ended up being destroyed uh, at least military. Uh, speaking in in Syria uh, and oh. Iraq, uh, and this is the situation situation where we are now. But mm -hmm. each cycle, as you know, have, 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 have reached a peak, and then end up, you know, uh, being like uh, like a, like sort of facing the reverse situation. So in the middle mm -hmm. of the 1990s, the peak was was of course the uh, the, uh, the the, the takeover of the power by the Taliban in Afghanistan, and it, it directly leads to 9/11. But after that, the, the the Taliban regime is is destroyed by the U.S. reaction and the international commu community reaction with the war in Afghanistan, and ended up like Al Qaeda being networks there, like end up being either destroyed or at least um, like not in full capacity to 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 act. And then you've got the the war in, in Iraq that will like provide a new dynamic. But then eventually the so-called Islamic State of Iraq that was founded there in 2006 by Al-Qaeda will end up hitting the wall again 
by the, the so-called surge that was raised by the U.S. Army hand-in-hand uh, hand with, with Sunni uh, tri- tribes and, and militias there. And then you've got ISIS that, uh, of course, ended up like launching attacks everywhere, but ended up being destroyed there as well. So we are like, again, in the middle of a low tide. Like we had three circles, three high tides and three low tides. And as of now, yeah. as we speak, we're in the middle of uh, a, a low tide mode, if I may say so, because the organization that praise jihadism are in a bad shape or are trying to reconfigure themselves, uh, but they are not uh, have free hands to act as they want to do. But we need to focus on what they are actually doing. And when they are in these low tide modes, what they are doing is not plotting attacks. I mean, it might happen, of course, but their priority is not that. Their priority is to reconfigure themselves, is to recruit new, uh, um, you know, new networks to rebuild cells and to oh. basically get ready for the next high tide mode. And, and mm. this, they cannot do that by themselves. They need to find a crisis and nest within that crisis and then mm. attract new people. But Bounce back. To, 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 to put it simply, the last thing that I want to say about that is that if you look about the, the trend in the past three decades, well, the, the high tides uh, have been always uh, bigger and bigger by the day. So... Like to put it very simply, in the 1990s, there were only a few dozens of Europeans involved in jihadi organization. Then the next decade, there were like a few hundreds. And the official uh, numbers of Europeans involved in ISIS, I guess, is around 6,000 6, uh, in, 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 in the last decade. So my point is we cannot, uh, you know, do nothing and just expect the, the phenomenon to just like you know, uh, finish by himself. Uh, if we expect again and like sort of turn a blind eye on, on what is happening now in the low tide mode, then we might get a new surprise and and realize that the the, the false wave will will get bigger again. So uh, there's a tide a phenomenon with ups and downs, but the coefficient of the tide is getting higher and higher. Essentially, I mean, um, we we still see you know. Um, quite some attack activity. Um, what has changed are, of course, several things, but but uh, one main thing is is a major shift in European counterterrorism. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, European uh, authorities have been doing things over the last or since you know the big wave of attacks by IS in in uh, twenty fourteen to seventeen. Things that were kind of unthinkable, if you are going further back in time, right? In terms of uh, the way they have uh, countered foreign fighters, uh, the way that European uh, states have actually gone after their uh, citizens in conflict zones uh, to basically uh, kill them, um, and also uh, you see, I've seen much. Uh, uh, tighter surveillance of these networks, uh, prosecutions, uh, changed laws, uh, more you know possibilities to contain networks, and uh, uh, it goes back to the thing I was talking about. That um, I agree with Hugo that uh, jihadism in Europe is is more than attack activity. Of course, uh, it's. Um, it's uh, a wider phenomenon of, of radicalization in 
uh, semi-militant or, or or more militant milieus uh, over time. But at the mm. same time, uh, there is a very uh, concrete network which which has has you know developed and expanded over time in in, in layers, and there are connections uh, between the uh, the the cells and and and, and um, networks we have seen operating um, in the mid from the mid 2010s and, and, and onwards and dating you know back to the to the to the mid 2000s and and, and even back to the 1990s uh, so there's there's this generational connection uh, between some networks that that aren't really integrated into uh, into European Muslim communities as such. Of course, the people who have joined these networks uh, come from uh, uh, Muslim communities, but there are also, you know, uh, quite quite um, a major component uh, or element of, of, of um, converts involved and, and things like that. And, and yeah. they are from different nationalities and we can talk more about the profiles later, but but still it, it's, it's quite concrete and it's it's traceable and 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 uh, you know by uh, being more alert and, and changing counterterrorism policy uh, policies, European uh, governments have been able to contain the threat. Uh, this is th- that is what what has happened o- o- over the last few uh, few years. Uh, mm-hmm. And at the same time, the world is changing. Right, um, we we see. Uh, Western uh, nations uh, kind of downscaling their military footprint in Muslim countries, yeah. which is which has been a strong incentive for attacks in in Europe. If you are looking at these waves of attack, we can we can see uh, that they coincide with you know uh, military interventions in, in in Muslim countries. So that's obviously one of the drivers. Uh, we also see a peak in attack activity, as also Hugo mentioned, in connection with the uh, with the publication of the Muhammad cartoons in Denmark in in uh, 2005 and the republications of 2007, uh, and also that um, that there was a campaign, a propaganda campaign, led by Al Qaeda and also like-minded uh, militants uh, who uh, were kind of. Um, uh, exploiting um, theological texts uh, by medieval scholars such as Ibn Taymiyyah uh, mm. kind of um, encouraging uh, individuals to to punish um, those who insulted the, 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 the Prophet Muhammad and also a discourse around this uh, so-called uh, ideological concept of the covenant of security which means that uh, according to jihadi ideology uh, a person uh, a muslim living in a non-muslim uh, country um, having enjoying protection um, in in, in, in um, by, by being a citizen or or by having a political asylum is not allowed to attack um, that particular country, mm-hmm. um, but uh, according to the ideology, ideology there are uh, some factors that annul this covenant of security, and those are, you know, uh, military action against uh, Muslims. Um, you have arrests of Muslim on a large scale, and 
last but not least, um, uh, the, uh, what they define as insults against the Prophet, uh, Prophet Muhammad, oh. which is which is uh, something that the jihadists have, have have used very actively to uh, in order to justify, you know, uh, attacks on, on on European countries, uh, and very specifically, uh, this was. Yeah. This was highlighted by Umar Bakri Muhammad when he was um, uh, re, uh, he was relocating from the UK to to Lebanon uh, after the London attacks in two thousand and five, where he where he, he was was one of the the, the people who, who wrote about and talked much about this concept uh, of the covenant of security. And in two thousand and five, he he annulled this this pact. Um, uh, on behalf of, of, of his, his his followers, so so these are these are of course uh, ideological justifications, but the, but uh, oh. ideology matters uh, as uh, for, for these for these uh, extreme groups. Uh, in addition to, of course, uh, other drivers. Um, let me bounce back on, on something you you said about the insults on on against the prophet. Um, a year ago, French professor Samuel Petit was assassinated by a young Chechen for having used cartoons of Mohammed doing a class on freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Now, obviously, his death and the French government's response then ended up sparking a acrimonious conversation, especially with the United States, on the concept of laicite, on the potential impact on creating resentment within Islamic communities. Um, is... Is there a kind of correlation between a country's political, religious tradition and the rise of Islamism? To put it bluntly, is one model, uh, you know, in Eastern Europe or Western Europe or Northern Scandinavian multiculturalist, laicity, whatever, is there kind of a correlation here? Um, Hugo. All right. So on the on the Samuel Paty killing. We have to understand that it's, it's indirectly linked to the cartoon affair in Denmark. All right. So if we have to, to, to look for it, the, the, the first affair might be actually found out in, uh, in the Netherlands uh, in 2004 when the mm -hmm. film director uh, Van Gogh, Theo Van Gogh, uh, is assassinated in the middle of the streets by a Salafi uh, from, from The Hague who, who ended up like uh, meeting him in the middle oh. of the street and, and killing him. Then, a year after that, in, in September 2005, the Gillen Posten, which is like a center-right newspaper in Denmark, decided to uh, publish like some cartoons of, of Mohammed in protest for the censorship that was uh, or self-censorship that was supposed to uh, to affect a, a drawer who was uh, doing a, uh, writing a book about about the life of Mohammed for kids. Okay, he was he was trying to illustrate the book and he could not find anyone, and therefore the Jalen Poston like launched this sort of initiative that in the first place didn't like trigger any reaction, and then two months after that. We ended up having like a sort of mass demonstration in certain countries of the Middle East, and this was like sort of produced by the involvement mm. in the and the activism of certain Salafi and Muslim Brotherhood uh, activists in, uh, in 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 Denmark and in Lebanon and Syria, so and then in Egypt. So I mean, it is like it sort of was a byproduct of activism. It was not like a, a sort of a, 
reaction in the first place of Muslim offended communities in Denmark. That's very important to understand that. But then, you know, out of solidarity, certain newspaper in Europe, in Germany, in Belgium, in France, started to reproduce these cartoons, showing that freedom of speech was mm. something very important and like sort of a cornerstone of liberal democracies. And, and one of them was in France, Charlie Hebdo. And Charlie Hebdo added some more, some new cartoons that ended up, uh, you know, producing some reaction and some death threats. And this, like, fast forward, ended up with the killing of Charlie Hebdo's uh, newsroom in, in on, on 7 January of 2015. And and therefore, this sparked, like, a new debate in, in France, which ended up during the trial of of the accomplice of the killers of, of Charlie Hebdo newsroom uh, in September, October 2020, with a new debate, new death threats, and and therefore, like one teacher, Samuel Paty, who was actually dealing uh, and trying to cover that matter in, in one of his class, ended up being killed by someone who responded to the call of uh, of the father of one of the of Samuel Paty's students? So you know it's a very long chain of reaction, but that can be traced back to the Danish cartoon friend mm-hmm. Van Gogh murder. So that's very important to have that in mind. The second aspect of that is that, as we can see, is not per se a French affair. It's a European one, and I think it's very important to understand that in the in the European debate about jihadism, we ended up like having so much uh, discussions about like the French laicite specificities and then the British communalism specificities or the Netherlands uh, multiculturalist social contract specificities, so on and so forth, until like the Scandinavian so-called specificity. The thing is, if you look from uh, like a little bit of distance, if you take a little bit of distance, then you realize that the pattern is quite the same, actually, within all of these countries, the way jihadism spread among certain activist groups then that spread to like a new environment is quite the same, mm. irrespective to the specificity of, of each social contract in place in, in every of, of these countries. So I think it's very important to understand that it has like an importance, but you cannot reduce jihadism to reaction to that. Actually, the... The way jihadism spread is also has to be understood as something that is like almost like part of it is irrelevant to the public and national debate. Of course, it has to be shaped in it, but we cannot reduce it to that. Otherwise, we won't understand the dynamic Mm. of it. Um, Peza, in, in your in your book, you you identified different profiles, which would be joining these organisations. Um, can you maybe walk us through what would drive them to to join these organisations? Would, for example, the kind of resentment against uh, French laicite or something like that be important, or is it very secondary, as Hugo was saying? Uh, in my in my view, I think I think it's uh, very secondary. Uh, if you if you compare countries such as you know um, um, the UK and France who have uh, very opposite you know um, approaches to integration for uh, for, for instance and and, and um, you know as you, as you said the the, the 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 difference between the, the secularist model and, and and the multiculturalist model uh, we see a very 
a kind of uh, similar uh, type of threat and, and similar mm. uh, mobilization dynamics. Uh, so 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 I really and and although you know in in jihadi ideology and in in jihadi thinking, uh, um, they 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 speak of secularism as a religion as as a religion, and 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 something that poses a, a threat. But this refer refers to, in in my view, uh, to the to the uh to the situation in muslim majority countries and, and not in europe right um of course uh, there are many uh, individual reasons why why people become recruited so and and and, and uh, the approach to 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 muslims and 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 uh, the, you know um the, the political approach of the state is, is is of course a factor among many many others but uh, in my uh, my view, um, we can we can read a lot about when and where uh, jihad uh, uh, kind of mobilization and uh, attack activity occurs by looking at um, uh, at um, basically uh, how the how countries uh, have intervened against. Um, jihadi groups how they have uh, what kind of military footprint they have in in muslim countries uh, and 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 um, and also i think network dynamics in itself is 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 a very important factor uh, which explains why uh, when when you look at uh, at countries exposed to jihadism in 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 europe you have france on top you have uh, Brit uh, britain uh, as a second and you have germany as a third even though Germany, Germany does not is not known for uh, having had the the most uh, uh, or uh, have a very different you know a military uh, history approach during the the war on terrorism. Uh, mm -hmm. So 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 uh, you know the historical evolution of the networks uh, um, as a basically a window of opportunity. Uh, also explains uh, why 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 things happen where, where, when and where yeah. they do. And, and just very briefly, because we're we're uh, running out of time, but here for just a just a final question, Hugo, you were uh, just a few moments ago um, describing uh, a, the, the jihadism as as uh, as a sea, right? As you know, it has its tides. It has low tides and high tides. And we 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 may be in a low tide, but you you write that. Uh, without the hubris of triumph, some strategists can start planning for the next phase. So what do you think the next wave of jihadism looks like and how, how will it differ from its uh, predecessors? What are some of the ideological and tactical, tactical innovations that you expect uh, in, in the years to come? Uh, yeah, of course, it's very, uh, it's very difficult to, 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 to read the future. But the thing is, my, my old point is to understand what's happening right now. Uh, and, and, and if we understand what's happening right now, we'll be able to anticipate certain aspects. The thing is, in terms of jihadism, what we have to understand is like there is a jihadism between two attacks, okay? And it's not like only like terrorism. It, it has like a presence in certain social environments. There, is, there are some militants who are actively like sort of preaching and recruiting, okay? And if you understand that, then you understand that the pure security response is not the only one. I mean, developing like new laws and developing a sort of, a, you know, like only like betting everything on the side of uh, developing 
uh, a sort of a counterterrorism policies is a nonsense. I mean, what you like, I'll take a concrete example. Like one of the recruiters uh, that I've met in, in French prisons where was was telling me that uh, his job as a recruiter for ISIS was just like a social uh, worker in, in in deprived area, like recruiting people but not for like integrating them uh, in the society, but actually to the opposite goal, like to like make them understand that they have no future whatsoever in that, in that circumstances. And therefore, if you understand that, then you understand that one of the responses to put people like boots on the ground and boots on the ground doesn't mean like new policemen or new counter-terrorist specialists, but actually some people will be able to work in these, you know, uh, uh, environment will be able to develop a narrative like that will like dismantle the counter-narrative that jihadist and islamist as a whole are producing against like the very basic values of of european liberal democracies and uh, what my point is we need to understand that jihadism is also a social and a political and a societal so to say um a phenomenon and and it has to be uh understand as such it's an int- intellectual challenge because if we understand jihadism in this full expression in these we will be able to prevent the causes and to prevent the next wave to happen but if we just like expect jihadists to just like dis- mm. like disappear then you know we are like sort of we are being weak and we will be unable to understand. So to put it in a nutshell, we, we kind of see that with, with the, um, the, 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 the invasion of Ukraine, uh, with Russia, that there is now a European de- like reaction to like what is like an, a threat that cannot be denied, which is the Russian threat to right. a European countries. And, and this is very visible because we see tank crossing the border, right? And the thing is, with jihadism, the attacks are like sort of, because they are following this up and, and low tide mode, uh, are sort of a, most of the time limited to just like, you know, like a few, uh, a sort of like a news thing that happened once in a while. But we don't see the big picture here. And the big picture here is like there is a phenomenon that is called jihadism. Now it's a European homegrown thing. And we need to react to that without expecting the next phase because the next phase is going to get bigger. So in order to do that, we need to understand like where we need to like respond to it. And, and that's my point is there is territories behind this history. There is a geography be- behind the, the history of, of European jihadism. Mm. These territories are, of course, the prisons, of course, the, the, the front lines abroad. So the Syrian crisis, so it was one of them, the Afghan crisis was one of them, of course. But we also have territories in Europe that are partly affected by this trend, and that's where we should like invest the most. And 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 we should tackle that not only as a terror threat, but as a political and a societal like issue that, that needs, you know, to have a response, but not only as a counterterrorism project. And and Peter, do you have any thoughts on the uh, upcoming trends? Yeah, I mean um Sugo says uh, uh, there are, you know, potentials for for coming waves. Of course, I mean, jihadism as a phenomenon in Europe has never been uh, uh, as big as, as as today. I mean, uh, the major mobilization for the for the um, uh, conflict in Syria 
uh, as Hugo mentions, uh, European prisons are uh, kind of uh, we, we have a lot of you know people who had um, who have been been active in in in, in GRI networks within the prisons now, and 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 some of them are. Uh, in the process of being released, some have been re- re- released. So, so uh, p- potentials for new mobilizations are is, is absolutely there, of course. And and uh, you cannot contain um, an ideological movement such as this and, and a social uh, movement such as this uh, by uh, you know tough anti-terrorism politics only. You have to find the right balance between between. Uh, prevention and uh, kind of um, uh, st- containing uh, the, the, the 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 most militant and most dangerous networks because um, keeping the attack activity uh, levels low in itself uh, helps um, helps uh, solving the bigger issue because uh, the attacks. You know, when when they uh, when you have act, act, uh, attack uh, activity levels as you had in twenty fourteen to twenty eighteen, basically, and uh, uh, you you create major potential for polarization, which in turn mm. uh, makes you know uh, you know um, uh, all uh, efforts at at uh, doing prevention more difficult, right? So 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 that is one thing. Uh, but but I think we have to acknowledge that uh, European counterterrorism policy, in the until the the the, the mid two thousand and tens, were on the soft side, and and, and that gave uh, kind of these uh, or organized networks um, many opportunities to interact with groups in conflict zones and 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 you know. Um, become uh, stronger and and pose a threat to to, to yeah. European societies so so I think we, we kind of, we would kind of had to see uh, a shift toward uh, harder measures uh, and this has helped stem the most acute threat but long term we need to spend money uh, allocate resources on doing you know uh, prevention of, of the uh, of the softer type. Fantastic. I think we can wrap up um, here. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much, Ugo, for this fascinating conversation where we went from Afghanistan to um, today. Um, so glad you could join us both. And to all our listeners, I say see you next week. So, Ugo Michon and Peter Nesser are both out. François, what did you think of this episode on European Jihad? First of all, it's great to have Ugo back on the show. Uh, it's always nice to have people back on the show. But I think Ugo is, is, is uh, particular because he is a huge fan of the podcast. Um, he's someone who I think listens to nearly all of them. Um, and so we, we you know, we're always very happy to have a, a fan on the podcast back. And it was also great for another reason, which is um, when we were preparing for this episode, we'd reach out to different people and, and see if they'd be interested and, and so on. And um, and Hugo told me, oh, Petal would be amazing. I, um, my my book, which just came out for Le Jihadisme Européen on European Jihad, um, you know, one of the bases for my work, one of the inspirations for my work was Petal's work um, uh, he published in 2016. So it was quite, and they had never actually properly met. So it was quite um, quite nice to be able to create that kind of encounter between both of them. Um, 
Now, on the substantial side of, it, of the conversation, um, I, I just found it interesting that what Hugo was saying that we are, perhaps we focus too much on the terrorism aspect of the conversation. Because obviously it's the most visible, it is the most aggressive part. Um, but what he is saying is, while we see the tides of jihadism wane back and forth, what we do see is the kind of larger network around it build up, strengthen. And uh, I think um, the long-time followers of the show will remember our fourth episode, I think, with Gilles Kepel, where he was describing the concept of uh, jihad d'atmosphère. Maybe not fourth episode, but one of the very early ones we had. But jihad d'atmosphère, essentially saying kind of the atmosphere that jihad, kind of environment which led to the death of Samuel Paty. It wasn't just, you know, one, one, one terrorist taking a gun and, and assassinating someone, or a knife in this case. It was an entire environment which um, spread the message that the professor was Islamophobic, um, sent it to social media, created a campaign against him. And in the end, down that channel, you got the death of Samuel Paty. Um, and it makes me think a lot, and I think, I think that's probably something Hugo uh, might point out, but the strategy of groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, when they were politically crushed um, by the mil- military, and they decided to develop themselves, not through violence, not through terrorist attacks, but through charities, through different organizations. And in many ways, they replaced yeah. the state where the state was insufficient. And they created networks, they created, they gave support. And, and it gave them a friendly um, population that would be willing to listen to their narrative. And also gave them a platform to say, well, the government is corrupt, that's why we're facing all those ills and it's not taking care of you and so on and so on. And in many ways, what we are seeing, and I obviously know the French case best, but it seems like it's a case in a lot of countries, in Sweden, for example, where they will try to create these invite these um, organizations. It's not like you can, they're not always obviously, you know, uh, jihadist fronts. Some of them are quite subtle about it. Um, but they, they give that kind of credibility and that kind of audience they need within, um, within populations which could be sympathetic to jihadis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, and look, and I think, you know, this, this whole notion of uh, an atmosphere jihad, I think really, really um, uh, um, kind of uh, evokes very, very importantly, uh, the fact that, you know, it is primarily sociology. Sociology is the discipline that we have to be using if we want to really understand jihad. I mean, I don't think it's political science. I don't think that, you know, you know, knowing, um, all, all, all the intricacies of the different kind of uh, political systems across the Arab world and their different allegiances. I don't think that really helps you that much to understand kind of radicalization. Uh, I think what helps you understand radicalization is sociology, is, you know, what kinds of uh, web content are these uh, young uh, radicals uh, watching? What kind of uh, news are they uh, hearing about? What kinds, uh, what kinds of environments are they in? So it really, it really reminds me of kind of the, the same kinds of problems that um, the first generation of sociologists studied. I mean, people like Emil Durkheim or um, uh, um, forget the name of his, uh, his uh, colleague in France, but um, they essentially studied, you know, what uh, triggers people to commit suicide. And I think that if, if, you know, if jihadism had been um, had been a phenomenon in late 19th century France, these this early generation of sociologists would have been writing about 
jihadism. What triggers people to become a radical and go to Syria and go wage war against, you know, the decadent West and um, and liberalism or or whatever it is. So, um, and I think another thing that I found really really interesting in this conversation is this notion of dependent and independent variables. I mean, uh, Petter was was um, was um, was uh, speaking to this uh, very eloquently. He said, you know, to me. A terrorist attack is the dependent variable. And then I, I have, so he essentially has an equation in his mind that he constantly reverts back mm. to where he is plotting mm. in, he's, he's plotting in these uh, independent variables, things like, you know, someone's background, someone's um, access to mm. information, someone's um, environment. And you plug all of that in and you you essentially should be able to get, you know, the likelihood of someone turning Islam, turning a, a jihadist. Um, that's kind of yeah. what I got away from from this this whole metaphor of, uh, of, of equations. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm, I'm just like you, just like you said, I'm, I'm tremendously happy to um, to have had Hugo, uh, Hugo Michelin back on the podcast. He is certainly a great, great yeah. friend of our project and uh, look forward to having him uh, more often. Yeah. Um two things first of all i recommend reading um petter's book there is in the opening he describes kind of four main profiles of people joining this kind of jihadist networks and i think what is so important is people will fo focus on what he calls um the, the grifters and, and the stragglers i think essentially the kind of you know lost profile you'd imagine people with no education or little education who kind of in because they follow a something that is uh, maybe not cool but it's part of the kind of social fabric around them and gives them some kind of social capital and so on uh, but what he says is there's these profiles always exist but what also exists in parallel is a profile of the entrepreneur and i think that's perhaps something that maybe more people on the left will kind of miss out which is the idea that there's active forces trying to create a, 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 a give you know organize a fight against the west i think it's i think it's quite instructive on the divide on the right and left where the right will focus more on the kind of the threats of the, like, the enemies whereas the left will focus more on the on the flaws that could give our enemies those advantages but essentially it's got very interesting um structure of different cells for kind of different profiles i think there is the entrepreneur the protege the the drifter and and the straggler i think something like that um mm -hmm. something else which we were talking about before before we recorded with with peta which i think was interesting is um it may be less the case now but when the war in ukraine started my reaction was i'm not seeing any foreign fighters join international brigades to go and fight for ukraine like like they people did in 1946 um, to help uh, the Republicans in Spain. Um, now, obviously, this, this has changed since, and we actually might do an episode on the foreign fighters fighting in Ukraine, because I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, yeah. But I was thinking back then, mistakenly, of course, but I was thinking, when is the last time we saw young Europeans mobilize themselves to fight to die for a cause, um, a great cause outside of their borders? And obviously, the, the answer was quite daunting. It's Syria. The last time mm. we saw hundreds of young men across Europe, and, and young women, especially by the end, leave a country to fight for a greater cause. It was in the deserts of Syria to fight with ISIS. And 
I think it said a lot about kind of society that it was the cause people would be willing to die for. Um, now, obviously, what's going on in Ukraine could change a bit of the conversation. And I think Hugo was making that point towards the end of our conversation, saying um, the Russian tank is the visible threat to, to Europe. It's quite obvious. You see pictures, you see bombings, the rest of it. But he was making the case that political Islam, um, or kind of radical political Islam, jihadism, are not as blatant as the tank, especially nowadays when we are seeing fewer terrorist attacks. But we should be able to get that same kind of energy and focus that we are seeing at the moment with, across Europe on Ukraine on this issue. And I think we seem to lose focus, and or when we focus on it, we kind of have a, a securitization aspect to the conversation rather than seeing the bigger picture. Um, yeah, I think it was a really interesting thought from from Hugo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, as always, well, don't forget you can support the podcast um, for plenty of small ways. First of all, you can write a review. And uh, I know I say this every week, but it's actually pretty useful. It really helps to boost the search engine optimization. Uh, it also puts a smile on our face. So if you're feeling generous, um, you know, send us a smile. Um, and if you want to send us more than a smile, you can help us on Patreon. Now, um, our patrons have been tremendously useful in helping us update our equipment, um, organize ourselves, build a structure around common decency. We are now... Um, registered as a company in France. So that's that's brand new. So thanks so much to, to, to all of you who have helped us and allowed us to, to make that happen. Um, and we have plenty of ideas of partnerships and organizations, the rest of it. Now, at the moment, if you join us on Patreon, um, you'll be able to con uh, exchange with us. We ask our patrons if they have any ideas for uh, podcasts, for guests, or the rest of that. Um, but down the road, we were actually talking with um, some friends on what kind of special content we could give you. So um, if you want to join the adventure and if you want to have a special place in our heart, if you want to make sure Uncommon Decency keeps growing, and if you end up being here most weeks, well, maybe it's a time to support us. You can go down below in the description, um, click on the link below, and you should be able to support us on Patreon and all the help you can send us would be tremendously appreciated. Now, thanks a lot to all of you and uh, see you next week.